following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, for six Sundays now, we have been considering the ins and outs of what it means to walk in the light of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, if you want to turn there with me. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. I'd like to begin reading in verse 20. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. My son... Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, proceeding from it, flowing out of it, are the springs, the issues of this life. Everything you do flows from it. And so we are considering the ins and outs of what it means to obey Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. We have considered what we are as divinely appointed watchmen over the, over the kingdom of our hearts. To guard the heart is to man the walls of our hearts, as we looked at initially. It's to look within to see if there's any treacherous sins rising up within, but we're also to look without to see if there's any incoming enemies that threaten the heart. If you look at Proverbs 4.23, you'll notice that first God sets forth a mandate of supreme importance. Keep your heart. He then proceeds to give us the means of obeying the mandate. Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence, depending on your translation. And then thirdly, God lays before us the motivation for obeying the mandate. For from it flow the springs of life. So we have a mandate, the means of obeying the mandate, and then the motivation for doing what God says. As those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. 
Everything we do, whether it's good and godly and worthy of eternal reward, or whether it's wicked and destructive and worthy of divine condemnation, everything we do flows from the heart. Everything. Our worship, our service, our sacrifice, our praise, our prayers, our parenting, our husbanding, our wifehood, whatever you want to call it, everything we do flows from within. And so we're to guard this sacred thing called the heart. The regenerate heart, which has been given by God to his people, is capable of doing and producing indescribable good in this present world. At the same time, however, a failure to keep and guard and maintain the heart in a good and godly frame and condition can lead to untold disaster and devastation in this present world and in our marriages, in our families, in the church. And so here we are in our third week of considering the special seasons in our lives that demand greater diligence and extra vigilance in guarding our hearts, in keeping our hearts. We're looking at the seasons, the situations where we need to use extra diligence. We've talked about seasons of loneliness and seasons of rejection and seasons of trial and suffering and many other seasons so far. Well, this morning, instead of looking at three or four different seasons and thinking through the various dangers that those seasons introduce to our hearts, we're going to be considering just one season because of how keenly familiar every Christian is with this season. I'm referring to seasons of temptation and spiritual warfare. Seasons of temptation and spiritual warfare. Now, you might be wondering, so which is it? Are we talking about seasons of temptation or are we talking about seasons of spiritual warfare? Well, I'm attaching the two together because of how interconnected the two are with one another. The term spiritual warfare is broad enough to include both the Christian's conflict with sin and the Christian's conflict with Satan. And yet the term is narrow enough to make it unmistakably clear that we are talking about the Christian's inner, inward, internal warfare with forces of evil, whether those forces of evil be within us or coming from without us. Now, in a sense, the Christian believer is always, always in a state of spiritual warfare. Because as long as he or she remains in what Paul refers to as these bodies of death, bodies that, along with the creation around us, are groaning inwardly as they wait eagerly for the day of redemption, as long as we're in these bodies, we have to deal with the power and pull and gravity of indwelling sin. It's just how it has to be until the end. We have to deal with the power and passions of the flesh And we have to deal with the power and ploys of the devil. It's just how it is until our Savior returns to glorify us and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So in a sense, 
Yes, the Christian is always in a season of temptation and spiritual warfare. But what I'm referring to this morning are those seasons and situations in our lives when temptation is stronger than usual. And when the spiritual or unseen conflict with what Paul calls the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, when that conflict seems to be unusually hotter than normal. That's what I'm referring to this morning. Again, because of how keenly aware every Christian is of seasons like this, I think it's wise and I think it's prudent that we devote our morning to this immensely important matter. We're going to begin by considering the matter of temptation and then gradually move into considering what the Bible refers to as the tempter himself. And in all of this, our primary concern is still Proverbs 4.23. How do we keep and maintain and guard our hearts in times of temptation and spiritual warfare? That's where we're going this morning. So two main headings. Number one, we're going to consider first the matter of temptation, what it is, how it works, where it comes from, and how to guard our hearts through it so that ultimately we overcome it. And then secondly, we're going to consider the matter of spiritual warfare, what it is, how it works, where it comes from, and how to guard our hearts so that ultimately we emerge triumphantly from it. And then we're going to close with some final thoughts to equip our hearts and our minds for the battle. And so, to begin, I want us to think through and to think carefully about the matter of temptation. Let's turn to James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1, towards the end of the New Testament. Whether you use the English standard or the New American standard or the legacy standard Bible, the word temptation appears about 11 or 12 times in the New Testament. It first appears in our Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically in what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to close their prayers on the following note. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The word translated temptation there is the word perasmas. It doesn't primarily have to do with seduction or enticement to sin. Its basic meaning has to do with putting someone or something to the test, trying it. In fact, out of the 21 times this word is found in the New Testament, the word is translated as temptation only 10 times. The other 11 times that it's found, it's translated as trial or testing. But it's the same word in the Greek. In Peter's letters, for example, the word seems to indicate trials and testing rather than temptation. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 
he refers to his readers as having been grieved by various trials. And he goes on to speak about the tested genuineness of their faith. In 1 Peter 4.12, he tells his readers not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon them to, here's our word, test them. As though something strange is happening to them. So the context of these verses in 1 Peter aren't temptation. The context isn't temptation, it's trials and testing. Well, when James in his first chapter here says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, the Greek word for trials is the same one in the Lord's prayer. Do not lead us into temptation. And of course, that introduces a problem that we have to wrestle with as students of the Bible. On the one hand, James 1.13 tells us that God tempts no one. And the word tempt that he uses there is the same Greek word for test. And we know that God does test people. On the other hand, we also read that God cannot be tempted with evil. Yet we know that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, was tempted, same word, by Satan. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Matthew 4.1. And yet God cannot be tempted with evil. It's all the same word in the Greek. And so what do we do with this? When the same Greek word is sometimes translated as tempt and other times as test. And I think the safest thing to do is to let the context, the biblical context of a passage determine whether the word should be translated as tempt or test. So look with me at James chapter one, where James scatters these words throughout this opening chapter. And as we're going to see, James expects us as the readers to make a distinction in the meaning between the testing that God brings into our lives and also the tempting that God never does. Even though James uses the same word for both of them, he expects us as the readers to make the distinction. And I think he does a good job with clarifying what he means. So let's begin in verse two. James chapter one, beginning in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, here's our word, trials, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now skip down to verse 12, where we find this word again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under Trial, that's the same word found in, up in verse 2. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has prepared for those who love him. And now notice how James begins to use the verb form of this Greek word in verse 13 now. So it's the same word, but it's the verb form in the Greek. Let no one say when he is 
tempted. Here's the word. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And now it's here in verse 14, where we are finally able to differentiate between the trials and the testings that God brings into our lives and the tempting that God is never, ever guilty of. Look at how James describes the life cycle of temptation in four stages, beginning in verse 14. But, he's connecting verse 14 to verse 13, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James describes temptation's life cycle in four stages. And for the sake of helping you remember these stages, I'm going to list them all as beginning with the letter D. Number one, first stage is that of desire. Desire, that's where it all begins in verse 14. The place of desire. Now in the New Testament, the word for desire, epithumeia, is not necessarily a negative word as it's found in the, in, in the, in the Bible here. It's, it's not necessarily a negative word. Jesus used this word when he told his disciples that he earnestly desired to eat the Passover with them before he suffered. So he doesn't use it in a negative sense. It's the same word that Paul used when he stated that his desire was to depart and be with Christ. Epithumeia, same, same word. However, here in James chapter 1, as in many other places in the New Testament, it's used in a negative sense. Perhaps a better translation would be lust or sinful passion. I want to highlight that our desires aren't always bad. In fact, we might argue that when people fall into sin and slip into sin, it all started because they desired something good. They desired, longed for, craved, wanted something good. Like happiness or security or satisfaction or stability or good food or even sexual pleasure. All things that God created to be enjoyed within the confines of his divine design. However, instead of seeking out those things the way God calls us to seek them out, we pursue them in ways that short circuits God's design because we want instant gratification rather than waiting on God. According to James, temptation begins with the place of desire, either desiring good things or desiring forbidden things, but it begins with the place of desire. Now, the second stage in temptation's life cycle is deception. Deception. Notice what happens with these desires in verse 14. Instead of immediately nipping an evil desire in the bud, a person is lured and enticed. Lured and enticed by that desire. The word lured means to be dragged or carried away. And we know that this takes place initially in the heart and in the mind. The heart 
and mind are carried away from the word of God and from the God of the word. And then the word enticed there in the Greek was actually a fishing term used with reference to the bait on a hook. Enticed. Now, no one, at least I don't know anyone, no one ties a hook on a fishing line and then casts it into the water and expects a fish to go for the hook. No one does that. You have to first bait the hook. You hide the hook inside the bait in order to attract fish. So if you think about it, the key to successful fishing is deception. You want to deceive the fish. You're deceiving fish by making the bait around the hook look attractive to them. And as soon as they bite down on the bait and attempt to swallow it, they find themselves pierced by the hook and unable to escape. I must admit that in my study of this, I went on a rabbit trail and and was visiting, you know, different biologists' websites and trying to determine, do fish feel pain? Some said yes. You know, all the the PETA people are all, yes, yes, it's cruel. They feel this pain. Others are like, nah, they don't feel any pain. It's not the point. I got sidetracked there. But that's exactly how temptation works. Yeah, some said that when you pull it out of the water and the fish is just going crazy, it's because the, the nerves, and they're just feeling excruciating pain. Uh, and some say it's just because they're wanting to get back into the water because they're essentially drowning in the air, right? So anyways, but that's how temptation works. Our inward desires, if they are left unchecked and unattended, can quickly lure and entice us by deceiving us. And it's here, friends, it's here at this stage that the mind begins to rationalize and justify going after the bait. And by this point, we don't believe it's bait, do we? We think it's the real deal. We don't think it's just the shadow. We think it's the substance. We think it's the real deal. The desire to get what we want is so strong that either we, one, fail to consider the possible hook beneath the surface, or two, We know that our pursuit will lead to pain, but we don't care because we've already been deceived. The third stage in temptation's lifestyle is disobedience. Notice the progression in verse 15. After the individual is lured and enticed and deceived by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to Sin. And what is sin? It's lawlessness. It's going against God's will, going against God's law. It's disobedience to God's will. Disobedience. James, in a sense, personifies evil, saying that daddy temptation and mother desire come together to conceive. And when they do, they give birth to a child named sin. Disobedience to God's word is always the inevitable result of temptation and desire being allowed to mingle together. And if this pattern of sin continues on without repentance, biblical repentance, notice the fourth and final stage in the life cycle of temptation, death. Verse 15 concludes, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth or brings forth death. 
brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. And lest we think that death is some sort of annihilation or a cessation of existence, we read the following words in the closing chapters of the Bible. Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation 21, 8. But for the cowardly and for the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what death is. So sin, when it is fully grown and when there's no repentance, it brings forth death, the second death, eternal death. And so James teaches us how temptation works. Desire, when it's left unchecked, unattended, unchallenged, unmortified, leads to deception. Deception leads to disobedience, and disobedience without repentance leads to death, eternal death. And if we are to keep and guard our hearts from sin, we need to know how temptation works. You might say, I just came here to get some pointers on how to keep my heart. Well, you need to know how this whole thing works. You need to know how temptation works. So James explains it here. And we should know, every one of us should know that the earlier in the process we determine to resist and cry out to God for help, we are more likely to avoid the sin and abound with thanksgiving for God's deliverance. But we've got to catch it early. If we are to guard our hearts, it is crucial that we prayerfully keep a close watch on our desires, what we want, what we love, what we say we need, what we crave, what we long for. If those desires are for good and godly things, things that God created to be received and enjoyed with thanksgiving, then prayerfully pursue those things in a God-honoring manner. You might have to wait for God's timing to fully enjoy it, and you might have to exercise self-control, but I can assure you that you will not regret pursuing these things with God at your side. However, as you examine yourself, and if those desires are for evil things, worthless things, things that God forbids in his word, then it's there at the place of desire that you need to mobilize the entire army of divine resources in order to weaken the temptation and avoid the sin. If you see that you desire something that's not good, don't just sit there and let it grow. Don't just sit there and let it grow hotter. Don't just sit there and let the army grow. As soon as you recognize something that you want, and that it's evil, and that it's sinful, then you need to mobilize all the armies, the divine army of resources that we have at that point in time. Resources such as praying in the Holy Spirit. Resources like reading the word with a sense of desperation and urgency. God, help me. God, renew my mind. Fix my mind on things above. Resources like reaching out to other believers for encouragement and accountability. Resources like meditating on the truth that you know and have received. Resources like something 
As simple as fleeing youthful passions in order to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Resources like setting your mind on things above, biblical meditation, resources like taking a walk to behold the glory and wisdom of God in creation. The list is endless. But as soon as you recognize a bad, unhealthy desire, don't just sit on it. Mobilize. The earlier that you take action in the process of temptation, the easier it will be to escape its grip. The longer you wait to take action in the process of temptation, the harder it will be to escape. Friends, obviously, as a pastor, I talk to a lot of people. That's one of the spiritual gifts is talking. My wife knows it. But in talking with a lot of people, so many Christians start to fight temptation in the second stage, the stage of deception, when their minds have already been poisoned, when their conscience is, sorry, when their conscience is already malfunctioning, when their powers of reasoning are weakening when they're already rationalizing and justifying the pursuit of sin, that's when they start to fight. When they have already been lured away from the truth and enticed by the attractiveness of the bait, and when they've already bought into the lie that confession and and repentance will be easy after the sin is committed. They already, that's when they start to fight. Friends, don't wait until this dangerous second stage of deception to start taking action. God has set you on the watchtower overlooking the kingdom of your heart. And as soon as you see either a good desire that can easily be hijacked by the flesh, or you see a godless desire that is coming in fast like a battering ram, you're to sound the trumpet. And you're to mobilize the army of divine resources in that very moment before things get worse. Don't be like the watchman that waits to see if the enemy soldiers with their catapults and battering rams can actually break through the wall before you sound the trumpet. Don't be like that guy on the wall that says, no, 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 let's see if they can actually penetrate. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. We don't want to alarm anybody. Let's see if they can actually break through the wall. Or climb the wall. And then we'll move. No. As soon as you spot any enemy activity, take action. It's better to over-engage and over-react early on in the stage, in the process, than to wait until there's a gaping breach in the wall and fires within the kingdom of your heart before you start to act. John Owen defines temptation as, quote, anything, state, way or condition that upon any account whatsoever has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin in any degree of it whatsoever. So back to James chapter 1. We see how James can use the same Greek word to talk about the trials and testings that God brings into our lives for our good and his glory, and also the temptations that we experience because of our own fallen desires. God, being light and righteousness, cannot be lured and enticed 
by desires because his desires are perfectly pure and holy. Nor does God ever actively tempt individuals in order to lure them and entice them to sin. That's what James is saying here. We are tempted when our desires and our passions or our lusts deceive us into pursuing them for the purpose of self-gratification. And so we've considered here what temptation is. We've considered how it works. But let's examine further where it actually comes from. So we've seen, first of all, that our own desires can and often are the primary source of temptation. However, secondly, temptation can also come from the world around us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And notice what he says concerning temptation. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. In other words, it's inevitable. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So clearly... Temptation can and does come from the world, the world around us, the people around us, the world, and as John says, all that is in the world, the lusts, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, things that are not from the Father but are from the world, that's where temptation comes from, in addition to the desires that are in us. This is why John commands us in verse 15 of 1 John 2, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So clearly, based on the word of God, we are to order our loves. We are to manage our loves. We are to take inventory of our loves. So clearly, John, like James, believes that sin is ultimately rooted in what we love what we desire. John uses the word love. James uses the word desire. Again, we can't overemphasize the importance of self-examination and self-reflection in these matters. To take a walk, to get alone, or whatever it is that helps you to focus and pray and to ask God to search and reveal your heart and what it loves and what it longs for. Now, some will avoid this altogether because they know that God knows what's in them. And so it's painful for them to sit before God and follow me here, knowing that he knows that you know that he knows what you love 
and desire. It's painful for some people. It's enough for them to say, well, God already knows. But then to go into his presence in prayer and to be aware that he knows that you know that he knows. That's something very different than just saying, oh, I know he knows what's in me. You don't, you don't want to do that. You want to sit before him and pray like Psalm 139, oh Lord, search me and know me and reveal any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Let me tell you something. If you avoid prayerful self-examination and self-inventory to see what's truly in you before God, how can you ever truly pour out your heart to him to sanctify and purify your heart and your loves and your longings and your desires? Much of our growth in sanctification and godliness really does come down to humbling yourself and getting real with God. Number one, if we were to keep our hearts, we must keep a close watch on our loves and our desires because that's where temptation begins. And secondly, if we were to keep our hearts, we must be aware of what we allow from this world to influence and shape what we love and what we long for. When Paul warned the Romans against being conformed to this world, he was essentially saying, don't allow the world to shape you after its godless mold and pattern. And the only way to avoid being squeezed into the mold of this world is to, as he says, to allow our minds to be transformed and renewed by the word of God and by the God of the word. And so temptation can come from within. Secondly, it can come from the world. But thirdly, as we transition now, it can also come and often does come from the devil. From the devil. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Let's turn there. Matthew 4, verse 1. We read here, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Temptation comes from the evil one, and you can... Count on it. If he tempted the head, he will tempt the body. If he tempted the head of the church, he will tempt the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, when Paul is talking to husbands and wives, he says, within the context of intimacy, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan is the tempter. We first encounter this individual in the Garden of Eden. We are not told when he got there. We are not told when he turned from what he was as created by God to what he is and forever will be. We're not given those details. We are simply told Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're confronted with him. Just like we read Genesis 1.1, we're not told what God was doing before Genesis 1.1. It just says, in the beginning, God. Not going to try to prove his existence, it just says, in the beginning, God. 
created the heavens and the earth. And in the same way, we're introduced to Satan by, now the serpent was more crafty. He's just, he's there, and we've got to deal with it. And of course, Moses proceeds at that point to give us the account of his deceptive assault on Eve, which ultimately led to the entrance of sin and death into God's created order. Now, among all of Satan's names in Scripture, Abaddon, the accuser, the adversary, Apollyon, Beelzebul, Belial, the devil, the dragon, the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the god of this world, the ruler of this world, the liar, the murderer, the prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, the roaring lion, the, the Satan, whether Old Testament it's the Satan, in the New Testament it's Satan, the serpent, the strong man. One of his most devious titles is the tempter. The tempter. And there's no wonder why he's called that. That's essentially how the story of redemption begins in Genesis chapter 3. With him tempting Eve to turn from God and what his word said. And so as you're there in Matthew chapter 4, let's read the account. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, no doubt. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's temptation number one. To please himself, to use his God powers, if you will, to turn the stones into bread. Then the devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's temptation number two, to get attention for himself, to test God, and something God wouldn't have called anyone to do. And verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Can you imagine what our Lord saw that day? All the kingdoms of this world and their glory. I wonder if that's glory as Satan would describe it or glory as God would describe it. But regardless... He shows them the kingdoms and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. He's the tempter. He's the one to lure you and entice you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul said, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, Thessalonians, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's known as the tempter. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that this tempter has schemes, wiles, the King James says, tactics, stratagems, strategies, 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Again, the word signifies stratagems, strategies, tactics, methods. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, We're not going to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The word designs there speaks of what he is capable of doing with his mind, with his thoughts, with his plans. Satan is an angel, highly intelligent, but fallen. He has a highly intelligent, but fallen, twisted, perverted mind. He uses that mind to plan and to scheme and to devise wickedness and evil. He uses that mind to destroy the people of God, to defame God, to deceive the lost, and to keep the nations in darkness. Now let's consider some of these strategies that he uses. Sensualism. When attractiveness and desirability have replaced God's word as my standard for determining God's best in my life. Sensationalism. When a person believes that immediate success is more desirable than success in God's timing. Sensationalism. He tempts people with universalism. We live together in the same world with the same kind of imperfections. And so we'll live together in eternity. It's okay. Live your own way. How about rationalism? It's one of his schemes. When you substitute human reason for simple childlike faith anchored in the truth of God's word, well, this makes the most sense logically, we'll say. But if it counters the word of God, it's disobedience. Existentialism. When we claim that we are the directors and masters of our fate and the captain of our souls, How about illusionism? When we believe that everything that appears or claims to be of God is of God without further investigation, when everything is a sign, when everything is a a, a sign from heaven. I'm sure you've met people like this before. Well, they look for God in the burn marks on the pancake. Everything. It's illusionism. ecumenism believing that hey all religions as long as you're sincere are valid expressions of God honoring faith humanism looking to man looking to yourself as the end all the answer to everything Satan not only attempts to distort or deny the truth of God's word but he secondly will always use his power and resources to discredit the testimony of God's people. So he attacks the truth, and then he attacks the testimony of God's people. He goes on, and he, we see from Scripture that he seeks to depress or to destroy a believer's zeal for God's work by tempting him with materialism and prizing temporary possessions and physical blessings prizing them more than being rich toward God in heaven. He tempts them with defeatism, saying you've sinned. You're no longer useful to God or his kingdom. And so he seeks to destroy the testimony of the church, even by negativism. When you believe that your weakness just truly just 
prevents you from being effective for God. When 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says that your weakness is what you need because it allows you to rest in the power and all sufficiency of Christ. He tempts people in the area of being pessimistic. Well, God can't can't possibly be working in any of this situation, he'll say. His fourth strategy is to dilute the effectiveness of God's people, to make them ineffective, to make them unfruitful by blowing up their ego, by normalizing their sin, by causing you to feel good about your sin because even the best saints also fall in this manner. How about cultism? Well, we're the ones with the truth. We're the ones with the real light. We're the ones... It's borderline Gnosticism, right? We have what, what everyone needs, and you need, you need to be with us. You need to join us to know really the secrets of the kingdom of God when God has all the secrets here in the word. Open for everyone. There's no secret hidden knowledge. We could go on and on and on, but those are some of the ways in which he tempts us by being comfortable with our sin, by comparing ourselves to others, by thinking we can't serve God, by believing we shouldn't serve God because there's other things that are more important. There's, the list goes on and on and on. In the 1600s, one of the Puritans, his name was Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in the book, he lists 12 devices or schemes that the devil uses in order to draw the soul to sin. And I figured we could look at these 12 together. The first device or strategy that Satan uses, he says, is that he presents the bait and hides the hook. That's one of his chief strategies. He presents the bait, but he hides the hook. He presents sin as sweet when it's really bitter. He says it will usher in the greatest happiness when we know sin leaves us broken and miserable after we go for the bait. Secondly, he says that one of the ways in which he attacks the people of God is that he paints sin with virtuous colors. In other words, he paints it, makes it look harmless, makes it look rational. Makes Our Savior was not a small Savior. The sacrifice he paid was not a small sacrifice. The death he died was not a small death. Sin is infinitely heinous, and that's why it took an infinite sacrifice, an infinitely glorious Savior, to put an end to our sin. Satan tempts the soul to sin by lessening sin. One of the things Brooks says is, sin which men account small brings God's great wrath on men. Fourth, Satan shows the soul the best men's sins by hiding from the soul their virtues, their sorrows, and their repentance. In other words, he'll remind you of some of the best Christians that you know and how they fell, but he won't tell you how they repented, how they're growing in grace, how they're growing in godliness, how they're taking steps to overcome their sin. He just points out their failures. Number five, 
He seduces our souls to sin by presenting God as one who is made up just of mercy and mercy alone. Well, God's merciful and he's gracious and he's slow to anger. And he uses truth there, right? It is true that God is mercy. It is true that God is grace, gracious. It is true that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But that's not all he is. He is an avenger. He is a God who comes against wickedness when there is no repentance. Whether in harsh discipline, loving discipline on his people, or eternal judgment on his enemies, God is one who is not just mercy, mercy, mercy. God is holy, holy, holy. And Satan fails to present him in that light. Number six, Brooks says that Satan persuades the soul that repentance will be easy. How many of you have been tempted with this? There's something that you really want, something that you really want to do, and the thought comes to your mind, I believe in the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. I don't believe one can lose their salvation. Therefore, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. Therefore, repentance will be easy. Confession will be easy. I'll just read Psalm 51 with no heart behind it. No, friends. Repentance is painful. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about godly grief that makes up repentance. Grief is not easy. Grief is not pleasant. Grief hurts. But yet that's what true repentance involves. Repentance that simply gets up off your feet, gets up out of the, the muck and the mire and just continues to run. You're just like the prostitute who in the Proverbs goes and does what she does and then just goes to eat afterwards and wipes her mouth like nothing happened. Satan persuades the soul that repentance will be easy and therefore the soul need not scruple about sinning. Number seven, he makes the soul bold to venture upon the occasions of sin. Be bold in your sin. God forgives. You have a great savior. He'll cleanse you. Eight. He presents to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by men walking in sin and their freedom from outward miseries. He'll say, look at the world. Here you are all in your room, all crying over your sin and your struggle with the flesh. Look at your lost cousin over there just living it up. Look at your lost friends at school over there. Just no problem on their minds. Their consciences are seared. And here you are troubled. Your face distraught. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Here you are living in Psalm 42. He doesn't show where their lives are headed. Eternal misery. Number nine. Satan presents to the soul the crosses and losses and sorrows and sufferings that daily attend those who walk in the ways of holiness. And he'll say things like, is it really worth it? What kind of God promises trials to his people? What kind of God says, I'll keep you, that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you? Why do you even have to pass through the waters? Why can't he just be with you? When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. Why do you even need the fire? What a harsh God. Why would Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says it say that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? What kind of God is that? 
You notice that Satan in Matthew chapter 4 was just ready to give Jesus everything just, just like that. And yet what God the Father promised Jesus was infinitely greater, but the way to achieve that was through the valley of humiliation and the valley of suffering because it brings glory to God. It shows God as the all-satisfying fountain of his people in the midst of pain and loss and crosses and sufferings. That's how God designed it. Number 10, Brooks says, by causing saints to compare themselves and their ways with those reputed to be worse than themselves. In other words... Go ahead and do this. You're still better than this guy. You won't be as bad as that guy. That guy's worse. That girl's worse. Have you seen her Facebook page? You don't need to go that far. Just, just go this far by comparing. He gets you to compare yourself to people that are worse than you. Number 11, Brooks says that one of the ways in which Satan seduces the soul to sin is by polluting the souls and judgments of men with dangerous errors that lead to looseness and wickedness. In other words, he doesn't show you where people are truly headed. He doesn't show you the judgments that await a godless life. And lastly, Brooks says that one of the ways in which he leads the soul to sin is by leading men to choose wicked company. One common way today is missionary dating, right? Well, I'll save this individual by, by dating them. I want to see her saved, and so I'm going to go. I'm going to humble myself and go in as a missionary, like Jim Elliot. I'm going to go. No. As soon as you are willing to entertain wicked company, Scripture says evil company corrupts good morals. Now, we are to be in the world. We are to be among the world. Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners he ate and he drank wine, if you will. That's why he, his enemies called him a drunkard and a glutton. He, mean, he, 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 he was with them. He was among them. He mingled with them, but he never once sinned. Now, if you know your weakness and you know that you couldn't do that, well, exercise prudence and wisdom and don't do that. But for the most part, we are called to go into this world with the power of God, with the armor of God, and to stand strong, even in the midst of a godless, perverted generation. But as far as wicked company being your go-to, that's a dangerous thing. Well, as we guard our hearts through seasons of temptation and spiritual warfare, I want you to keep in mind these final thoughts. Number one, sin will not be forever. Has that ever gripped you? Sin, the ability to sin, will not be forever. It's a temporary thing. It's a thing that is attached to this present evil world. A thousand years from now, if you're in Christ, you won't even think about sinning. 10,000 years from now, 50,000 years from now, as you are increasingly growing in the knowledge of an infinite creator. As Ephesians 2 says, as he is pouring out the riches of his grace and in kindness toward you throughout the ages, sin won't be present. And so one of the ways it can help your heart in moments of temptation is to recognize that sin is a temporary thing. 
The writer of Hebrews calls it a fleeting pleasure, a passing pleasure. Number two, very similar, temptation won't be forever. 1,000 years from now, 50,000 years from now, 100 billion years from now, in the presence of an all-satisfying fountain of joy, you will not be tempted to sin. You will not be tempted to look away from his glory. You will not be tempted to turn away to anything else. Temptation won't last forever. Realize that when you're tempted, this is just a temporary thing. This is not a defining factor for eternity. This is just a temporary thing. And number three, Satan will not be around forever to tempt us and to bring us to sin. He will be cast into the lake of fire. We read about his end in the book of Revelation. We read that he will, with death and Hades, the false prophet will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever. He will not be released He will not have a long chain from there. He will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever at the great judgment, at the judgment of the great day. So your heart, the desires will one day be perfected desires. Know that. Be equipped with that. Temptation won't be around. Sin won't be around. And Satan won't be around you anyway. Forever. And so this begs the question, Why does God still allow Satan to exist? It's a question that many, many people have. Why does he even allow him to exist? Why can't he just do away with him? The first thing we need to note, we're going to do a a short little excursion here as we conclude, is that it's not a question of can God eliminate him because we know that he will. It's just a matter of when. God could cause a lightning bolt to strike through his entire being right now and drop him and end him. He could. It's not a matter of can he. It's a matter of why and why. Why does he allow it? In his book on providence, highly recommended, by the way, John Piper touches on the ongoing existence of Satan Watch the recent interview with John MacArthur and John Piper, and I was very, very impressed on how this book came to be. MacArthur said when he picked it up, he couldn't put it down. It's a really good book on providence, God's control over everything, nature, evil, everything. And Piper offers four answers as to why he, God allows the devil to continue to exist. Now, I must admit that these answers aren't direct answers from the Bible, in other words, there's no, there's no one place in the Bible that says God allows Satan to exist because X, Y, Z. No, you have to put pieces of the puzzle together and then you can formulate, I think, a biblical answer as to why God allows Satan to, to continue. And not just to continue, but to continue to tempt, to continue to bring suffering, to continue to bring havoc and to introduce new ways of sinning against God. And he offers four indirect answers from Scripture And he paints the picture as God not necessarily defeating Satan in one decisive blow, but that Scripture teaches that God is 
progressively defeating Satan in four distinct phases. Number one, he is defeating Satan with showing. For that, I point you to Luke chapter 13. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. I'm sorry, Luke 13. Eight kind of looks like a three without the left-hand side. Luke chapter 13. Beginning in verse 10. Now, he, speaking of Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which to work, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And notice the result of Jesus. I mean, at this point, God could have healed this woman Prior to this, 18 years bound over, bent over. And who was responsible for this action? Satan had bound her for this long, 18 years. And notice the result, verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. One of the ways, one of the reasons God allows Satan to continue existing is that when Christ steps into the picture and either heals or casts out demons, as we see in the Gospels, God's enemies are put to shame and people are astounded at the glorious grace and graciousness of the Savior, praising God all the more as a result of Satan's ongoing existence. So he is defeating Satan by showing his power, by creating, allowing situations to arise so that when God steps in, so that when God acts in a redeeming, sanctifying, rescuing fashion, the people of God are appalled and astounded at the glory of God's wisdom and power and grace to heal and deliver and restore and renew. He could have done it any other time, but he waited until this moment in time. Secondly, God is defeating Satan with suffering. Piper goes on, he says, The most central and staggering reality about Satan's eventual defeat is not that he will be thrown into the lake of fire, but that Jesus was thrown into the lake of fire, as it were, to defeat Satan's hold on his people 
Both Paul and the writer to the Hebrews teach that Jesus defeated Satan by means of his suffering and death. For that, I point you to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to make this kind of quick. Colossians chapter 2. So we have seen, number one, that Satan is being defeated by God continuing to show his saving attributes, his power through his ongoing existence and the hell he creates on earth. But secondly, he's defeating Satan with suffering. Look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And notice what Jesus did on that cross to Satan and his demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The word disarmed there literally means to be stripped of your clothing, to be stripped of something. What an ironic picture because we know that Jesus was stripped of his clothing. We read that in Psalm 22. They took his clothing and they cast lots for it. So as Jesus is approaching his death, He is humiliated and stripped of his clothing. But if we at that moment could have invisible eyes to see what was really happening, Jesus was being stripped physically while he victoriously is stripping Satan and his demons of their damning power. Now, what, it begs the question, what did he strip them of at the cross? Well, the verses before. He canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. The only power that satan had against the people of god was his ability to say look most high god your people have this sin against them they've committed this blasphemy they've considered they've committed this evil god took that list of evil he put it into the palms of christ and he nailed it to the cross and he by that he disarmed satan from being able to ever stand before the throne of god and say tony back there he's no The debt has been paid. There's no accusation that can come against the people of God from the accuser and have that accusation stick to their record because that record has been canceled out and paid for. He disarmed Satan of his accusing, damning power before the throne of God. We also know in Hebrews chapter 2 that through the death of Christ, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We know that It was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. I'm quoting, literally. He put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. And yet, in so doing, he slit his own throat. That brings us to the third one. God is defeating Satan, not only by showing his attributes through Satan's activity, God countering those those actions, God countering those strategies by saving, redeeming, all of that, healing, Also, he's conquering him by, has conquered him already in one sense by the suffering of Christ, disarming him. But thirdly, Piper in his typical fashion says, God is defeating Satan with Satan. When he put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Christ, to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, Satan was sealing his own doom. 
Because in leading him to the cross, he was leading him to put his people's sin alone, or to put it away in a grave forever, to cancel it on that cross, to rise triumphantly because he had no sin. So God raised him up. And now that he's raised up, he is sitting there while all his enemies are being put under his feet, including Satan. God allows Satan to continue at least 2,000 years ago so that Satan could lead Jesus to the cross and so that Jesus would receive power and might and wisdom and just be crowned with glory, Revelation 5. That the praise of Christ might be that more exuberant from the people of God who are that much more thankful to be redeemed from the enemy's clutches. That's why he allows him to live. But thirdly, he is defeating Satan with savoring. And for this, I point you to one last place in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, the apostle writes, I must go on boasting. And obviously he's not sinfully boasting here. He's trying to make a point with his hearers at that point who had been enraptured, if you will, by false teachers. He says, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man, he's speaking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my own weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be found a fool. I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And now watch this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And now watch this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, that is in your weakness. And notice the result. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, all the more gladly. Of what? Of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God allowed Satan, or a messenger from Satan, to buffet Paul, to be a thorn in Paul's side, a thorn in Paul's flesh. Why? The end result was that 
Paul boasted all the more gladly, not in himself, but in the power of Christ, the attributes of Christ that were shining forth in the midst of this satanic activity. So we see in the end that God allows this angel to exist, to do what he does, to create situations that seem impossible so that when God enters the situation, so to speak, he is praised all the more exuberantly and gladly and victoriously. Piper goes on and says, this, Satan's most essential role in achieving that goal is to offer us every conceivable pleasure to entice us away from savoring, desiring, and being satisfied with Christ, and every conceivable pain to turn us against the goodness of Christ. When God's people face these temptations to prefer the world and to repudiate Christ, but instead gladly boast in their weaknesses and losses because of the surpassing value of Christ, Satan is defeated in the most wonderful and thorough way. God decreed it this way so that his people would be that much more satisfied in his delivering power, his sanctifying power, that when Satan tempts us and brings us into the valley of temptation and yet God is there. I, I think of the picture of the Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian is taken into that building and he sees this fire going and it's, it's, just, it, it's, it's, it's just burning hot, burning hot, burning hot. And he sees the devil pouring water on the fire. And it's, it's, it's not going out. On the other side of the wall, God is there pouring oil on the fire so that it's just burning all the more hotter, right? All, all, all the hotter. Why? Because he gets the glory while simultaneously satisfying the deepest longings of his people so that they praise him all the more. Why God's designed it that way, I don't know. But I know that the regenerate heart, the regenerate mind can rest content and say, you get the glory, I get the joy. To you alone be the glory. He will be defeated. He is being defeated. But on that day, when he is cast into the lake of fire, we will praise God all the more as we have done through the ages by being delivered from satanic assaults, by being delivered from satanic temptations. The glory of Christ appears now glorious in light of Satan's existence, and it will appear glorious in that day. Can you imagine the singing, the rejoicing of the people of God when they see this one who has caused so much calamity, so much chaos, so much destruction, finally done away with and cast forever into the lake of fire and brimstone? As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Everything he does seems to just undo himself even more because God's wisdom is infinite and his power is limitless. These are things to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, as we keep our hearts, as we maintain our hearts in seasons of temptation, seasons of spiritual warfare. We're to know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray.